This is All About Jack, a podcast feature of EssentialCSLewis.com. I'm William O'Flaherty, your host and the producer of the show. Let me ask you a few questions to start things off. What do you think about Owen Barfield, a friend of C.S. Lewis? What do you know about the Great War between them? How much did it influence Lewis's return to Christianity, as well as his writings? I'm going to explore all these questions and more with my guest today. Dr. Stephen Thorson is the author of Joy and Poetic Imagination, and no surprise, he explores these issues in that book, among other things. Also, keep listening after this brief interview to hear a short talk he gave at the recent 2016 Taylor University Colloquium that was about his book. Welcome to All About Jack, Stephen. Well, thank you for having me here. Well, now, your book has a very specific focus, and yet it deals with something that impacted Lewis in some ways throughout his life. So let's kick off by having you provide something you probably did to the publisher. Tell us what your book is about and why it is important. Well, it focuses on a recurrent experience of joy or poetic imagination that both Lewis and Barfield had and tries to show how their great war, their great argument they had between each other about the nature of truth and the, and the importance of this joy experience for truth uh, how that in, is is to be worked out in a, a, a philosophy of life or a worldview. And what I wanted people to do is learn to understand the importance of not only the Great War for Lewis's conversion, it's almost the unto- ignored or untold story of his conversion, to really get into the long uh, letters and treatises about a philosophy that led to his conversion. But it's also important that for the rest of his life, Lewis probably never wrote another book that didn't use arguments that he developed as a pre-Christian during the Great War period. Now, you note in your introduction that even though your book is based on events from the 1920s, only relatively recently were some of the details about it completely published. Uh, what came out, uh, you don't have to give a complete uh, details there, but uh, tell us some about that and why that is uh, noteworthy. Well, really only in 2015 did these uh, treatises that Owen Barfield and C.S. Lewis wrote to each other finally get published by the Journal of Inkling Studies as a supplement. And it's since those are finally available at least in uh, several hundred copies were published, that scholars should be able to get them and people should be able to maybe check the findings of a book like mine. And also the Great War letters that they wrote to each other has been previously published fairly recently in the three-volume collected letters edited by Walter Hooper. Right, and I believe uh, very specifically it was in the um, third volume, which is out of print. The Kindle edition is... uh, Relatively inexpensive, but the print one is not. Well, now, uh, even before the introduction in your book, which is, again, Joy and Poetic Imagination, you provide two components that I think the listener will find valuable to know about. Tell us what they are and why you uh, put it up front. Well, I put brief definitions of philosophical terms up front because many people now do not seem to get uh, philosophy courses when they're in college. Also, some of the philosophical terms have changed in their meaning in modern philosophy versus the philosophy that Barfield and Lewis would have been familiar with. The second component is a list of diagrams and tables because many of the uh, views of Lewis and Barfield can be easily explained in diagrams. And even Barfield, when he was alive and saw some of these diagrams of mine, felt that they were helpful to understanding his own views. 
Well, now, Stephen, with some books, you can get away with skipping the first couple of chapters. I'm sure as an author and myself, we don't want that to happen, but (laughs) this is clearly not true for your book, Joy and Poetic Imagination. At the risk of oversimplification, could you reveal some key points the reader gains from the first and second chapter? Well, the first chapter is critically important because it describes both Lewis and Barfield's experience of joy or poetic imagination, which was Barfield's term for the same thing. And unless you understand what this recurrent experience was, you're not going to see why the arguments were important. The second, of course, goes into the actual treatises that Lewis wrote to Barfield, and Barfield wrote back replies, and then Lewis wrote again back to Barfield. Unless you uh, we read that, you're not going to understand the recently published treatises and how they're important in their argumentation that is involved in the rest of the book. It also is the basis for our arguments in the rest of the book for crucial distinctions Lewis makes. Next then, uh, for the sake of time, let's uh, group, uh, and there is a reason for grouping chapters three through five, that uh, get, details some distinctives that Lewis ultimately made to respond to what you note as, quote, the confused thinking of his day. Can you give us a taste of some of this? Well, Lewis was very concerned that our uh, elevation of culture and good taste could somehow make us seem spiritual or divine or have a spark of the divine in us. So he made a crucial distinction as a Christian after the Great War was over. He made a crucial distinction between the created human spirit and the creator or God himself. He also made a great big distinction between the created human spirit and the created soul. And this resulted later on in his uh, in his making some uh, a lower view of the imagination than he held during the Great War. But other crucial distinctions were about reason, how reason was really something that did show itself to be partially independent from a cause-effect naturalism, a materialistic naturalism, and that moral reasoning or our moral conscience also shows some of that independence. He also, uh, it's very important to understand that Lewis made a distinction in two kinds of faith between uh, intellectual belief and and trust so that he never really did end up with any kind of a a leap of faith or believing a seeing view as some people have proposed in the past. You return to the Great War more specifically in the sixth chapter, a key focus being on the high, and I'm quoting here, high view of imagination with a capital I that both Lewis and Barfield share. What points could you share to spark a desire to want more? Well, during the Great War, Lewis had a very high view of imagination. He felt it was our highest spiritual life. And Barfield probably felt the same, although Barfield felt that imagination brought knowledge, not just meaning uh, or imaginative experiences that might be true and concrete sort of descriptions of them, but that Barfield believed they actually brought knowledge. But at the end of the Great War, Lewis had gotten out of the system of being he shared with Barfield and had ended up with a much humbler view of the imagination that was now in the created soul of man, not even in the spirit of man, which is now a created part of man, and that this humbler view of the imagination still was very important to Lewis, but he felt it didn't show evidence of us being spiritual or divine. Well, now let's digress from your book and turn the spotlight on you. What is Stephen Thorson's day job, and what books or essays from Lewis do you especially like? 
Well, for 32 years, I've been a missionary pediatrician in the country of Nepal, where Mount Everest is. I've also, uh, because I also have an MA in theological studies, have also, for about 25 years now, been teaching in a seminary in Kathmandu, teaching theology in a seminary, which is actually what I enjoy the most. As far as books of Lewis, I... I really believe that Lewis's best fiction book was Till We Have Faces, even though apparently it didn't sell as well as the Chronicles of Narnia and the, and the Space Trilogy, which I also enjoy, but I think that he actually was just absolutely brilliant in Till We Have Faces. As far as essays, I really think, uh, I don't know about essays per se, a lot of them were used later in some of the books. I like Miracles and The Problem of Pain very, very much, although I think The Abolition of Man should be in great books like it is. <laughs> Let me have you summarize either the final two chapters or give a few snippets of, of both. Well, I think the last chapter is very important because, in fact, Barfield read this one uh, before he died. It was published in seven, and uh, it shows how Barfield's uh, view of the evolution of consciousness was not Lewis's view, even though Barfield himself had it written in, in print that he was a little confused of why Lewis felt indebted to him when, in fact, he didn't seem to, to hold this evolution of consciousness. But Lewis believed in several more crucial distinctions. He believed in change in the human uh, uh, consciousness, but he didn't believe that this meant some sort of progress with a capital P, an evolutionary process. The similar thing also in his view of history. He felt that it did indeed show some patterns, but that these patterns did not show an evolutionary purpose in them. And then in, in closing, what else would you like to say about your book and or what appeal to give to the listener? Not sure if they should uh, or be interested in getting a copy of Joy and Poetic Imagination. Well, I have been working on this book for about 32 to 33 years and publishing some over the years, but it's, it's I think, extremely important to know that an awful lot of scholars have made mistakes about this, partly because they couldn't have access to the manuscripts until recently. I think that it, uh, my introduction would be a nice, easy introduction to the entire topic of the very important part in Lewis's life and conversion. And I think it also shows how much... Lewis's later writings were dependent upon arguments he developed as a pre-Christian. I also think it's important to know that Barfield held very unorthodox ideas that even he thought would be considered heretical by the church. And sometimes that has not been clear in some books on Lewis and Barfield, how very different Lewis and Barfield actually were on many of these questions. Well, Stephen, thank you for the time to talk to me on All About Jack. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, throughout the past three decades in Nepal, I have remained intensely interested in the C.S. Lewis and Barfield's Great War of the 1920s. I have uh, finally finished a uh, book on this. I just, Lewis thought he was quite argumentative, uh, which is available with uh, Wind Lion and Bobby Drexler again. <laughs> this Great War is mostly ignored by major articles and books um, on Lewis's, especially the Inklings altogether. Anyone who discusses Lewis and, and, and Barfield ought to mention it, but it isn't, in fact, very often discussed or only tossed aside in a paragraph saying it's too hard to understand. Yet major volumes of scholarship have, in fact, made mistakes also about this. Um, 
Many scholars do attempt to try to explain something of the arguments during this incessant disputation, but they often attack Lewis's theory of knowledge without understanding how his theory changed after his conversions. That is, they mix up his pre-Christian views during the Great War with his Christian views afterward. They argue with Lewis's epistemology without understanding the metaphysics upon it which it was based. Some people are scared off by the words epistemology and metaphysics. All this means is that they argue with Lewis's view of how we know some things without noting Lewis's view of what we are as human beings. Many of these scholars did have access to the original documents of the case. Even Lewis's Great War letters were left out of collections of Lewis's letters until the collected letters volume was prepared by Walter Cooper. And the two surviving Great War letters by Barfield were only published last year, along with the first appearance of the Great War treatises that Lewis and Barfield wrote back and forth to each other. This was published as a supplement to the Journal of Inkling Studies in the UK, and only 300 copies were printed. You better get yours now. I understand possibly they are already out of print. Surely all of you are sitting here know about Lewis's particular recurrent experience of joy with a capital J. This happened to Lewis regularly or irregularly throughout his youth in the Great War. It first made me through, as Lewis says, inanimate nature and marvelous literature. It was a sudden experience of longing for something ill-defined that was just as subtly withdrawn again, leaving only a new longing for the longing that had just passed. In his later introduction to the Pilgrim's Regress, Lewis also called this desire with a capital D. Many have tried to equate this simply with aesthetic pleasure, but without this second or even third, if you count them longing for a longing, we are not truly talking about Lewis's experience of joy. Barfield had similar experiences, which only began when he went off to Oxford in 1919, the same year as Lewis, but Barfield believed his experience, largely through lyric poetry, actually increased his knowledge of the world. He even published two books during the 1920s that argued this, and in Poetic Diction, he boldly claimed that his book was not merely a theory of poetry, but a theory of knowledge. We have to understand that when Lewis met Barfield, Lewis was a realist, a thoroughly modern atheist who believed that only matter and nature is real, no spirits and certainly no God. But Barfield, a few years later, became a committed follower of Rudolf Steiner, an Austrian esoteric philosopher who had left the Theosophical Society to found his own Anthroposophical Society. He taught a method of systematic meditation that claimed to lead to visions and knowledge of supersensible realities that were objective, that is, every trained meditating person should see the same truths. In practice, the result of Steiner's own meditations produced unorthodox teachings that included many Eastern religious ideas, including spirit guides, reincarnation, and even two Jesuses. When Barfield and another close friend, Cecil Harwood, became anthroposophist, Lewis claimed to be hideously shocked. There were several reasons for this, including his witnessing a close friend's last two weeks of madness, wallowing on the floor and screaming that he was being dragged down into hell. In spite of this, it becomes a surprise to many that Lewis came very close to accepting Barfield's view of the world. For Lewis, credits Barfield with moving him from naturalistic materialism to philosophical idealism, that is the teaching that reality is at rock bottom, mental or spiritual, not physical. Barfield had shown Lewis that his view of the validity of logic, his acceptance of moral absolutes, and especially his experience of joy simply could not be explained by a purely material universe. 
Lewis came to accept a form of pantheism close to Barfield and Steiner's view of the universe. However, Lewis never wavered on his rejection of a path to supersensible realities through the imagination. Yet Lewis showed us how much Barfield's arguments changed him. It could almost be called Lewis's signature move. He moved toward Barfield's viewpoint as far as he could go, but only to a point, and then he stopped. This signature move can be as seen as late as Lewis's letters to Malcolm, in which Lewis accepts much of Barfield's arguments in saving the appearances, but quietly corrects Barfield. The Great War was mostly conducted in person, and sadly we do not have transcripts of those dogfights. They continue these arguments by letter, and Lewis's letters are now in a supplement to the third volume of his of collected letters. In 1928, Lewis wrote his parody of Thomas Aquinas, called the Summa for short. Thankfully, only the names are in Latin, and the texts are written in English. No, but does that help? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Part one of Lewis's Summa is titled Being. That is, it details Lewis's acceptance of Barfield's idealism while repudiating any possibility of supersensible super awareness. First, Lewis agrees with Kant and Berkeley that the world can only be perceived in one's own mind, and Lewis concludes that the world only exists in one's own mind. Second, other minds or souls appear in this world and therefore must be inside our own mind. And third, within this one world, our mind has memories and history implying time and even implying it makes mistakes. So Lewis stated, my mind is included in my mind, a paradox. Spirit is the mind that includes all, and is what I really am, and the soul is the mind that is included, he wrote. Lewis also talks about the soul's emergence or separation from spirit. He sometimes calls this creation of the soul, but the word must be understood in the sense of emergence and continuity there. He also affirms the need for a common world or neutral system which is not malleable to the will of each soul. He ends up in the real world, he says, outside each soul, but inside, inside spirit. This world is the creation of what I, at some level, am, he says. Further, when spirit enjoys a soul, it creates it, and when spirit ceases to do so, it annihilates it. Barfield agreed. In his De Tota et Parte, he writes that he came by realization to realize by reflection on the difference between feeling and thought that I, while remaining one of the parts, must also in be, in some sense, the whole. However, shortly after Lewis wrote his Summa, he had come across, a, before he wrote his Summa, he had come across an argument that would help him to refute Anthroposophy's claim to supersensible awareness. This was Samuel Alexander's philosophical distinction between enjoyment and contemplation. It's important to get this correct, but many are confused. In his autobiography, Lewis is, of course, correct, but he does not explain Alexander well enough to prevent confusion. The point to notice is that Alexander was talking about one experience of focusing on an object or idea which can be described in two aspects, either as the thinking thought or as a contemplation on the object or idea whereas Lewis extends that to talk about two different mental activities, both of which have an enjoyment and contemplation. 
Lewis found this distinction to be an indispensable tool of thought, he says in Surprise by Joy. We cannot at the same time both enjoy a feeling of love while contemplating our loved one and contemplate our feeling of love while enjoying the new thinking about the feelings. The important point is we cannot turn around and examine our own minds, or when we do, we are no longer attending to the original object. Lewis included this crucial distinction in part one of Summa, title being, a soul can never turn around and look at spirit, a soul can never turn around and look at intermediaries, spirit guides would be an alternate translation of what he's meaning, a soul can never explore higher spiritual worlds as it would cease to remain a soul when it did so. In part two of the Summa, titled Value, Lewis discussed how souls can experience a higher spiritual life. Basically, as souls experience more of the consciousness of spirit, they become more spiritual. This happens as they get closer to the consciousness of spirit. They become more spiritual. Um, as they get closer, uh, yeah, uh, details many forms of the spiritual life, but is most interested in imagination with a capital I. I was not able to include the entire passage in my book, but I would like to read most of it to you. It may appear to us as a rediscovery, as if we came home after long exile, because we are indeed coming to recognize that we are spirit and everywhere in our own country and our own home. Or it may appear to us as a longing which is also fruition, or a losing which is also keeping, because we then veritably become aware of our dual nature and our division from ourself, when we are at once the spirit that possesses all and the soul that is abandoning that possession. We are then pure spirit as far as we go, for we are still limited, else would not be soul. Some may people the hills and trees with vague personality, nor are they wrong, for we share the life of the spirit which knows itself alive between all, beneath all its vesture. Such moments are our highest life. What a remarkable passage, a good description of Lewis's joy. Barfield wrote humble congratulations and thanks in his reply. He believed such a description implied his own views. <laughs> but Lewis used his new enjoyment contemplation distinction to deny some of the implications of this beautiful description of imagination with a capital I. Lewis rejected any attempt to apply a true-false descriptor to the experience of joy. He believed that one cannot both enjoy the experience of desire and contemplate its truth or falsehood at the same time. And when one returns to normal consciousness for a soul, it is no longer experiencing imagination. To summarize the Summa, Lewis claimed that just as the soul can't turn around to look at spirit and still remain a soul, just so the soul can't turn around to look at imagination and still remain a soul. That consciousness is annihilated. It is now that the Great War letters start to make sense. Although they were written first, they were better understood after reading the Summa. Lewis made a clear distinction between meaning and knowledge of truth. He writes, We can never argue from poetical imagination to the truth of any judgment which springs up in the mind as it returns to normal consciousness. Basically, imagination gives us a whatness, not a thatness, he said. It gives us meaning if true. It does not give us knowledge that it is true. Barfield disagreed. 
Lewis seemed to have left out feeling, which he argued is between thinking and willing. Feeling allows true self-consciousness, Barfield said. He called this in-between consciousness con-enjoyment. And if some of you have read the uh, introduction to the Great War treatises, you'll see that Norbert makes it very clear that Barfield, and in previous uh, arguments with me in seven, he has made it very clear that uh, con-enjoyment is impossible. And Lewis probably would have agreed, but Barfield, in fact, made this argument. Lewis's main objection was based on their shared view of the soul emerging from spirit. Barfield believed that the imaginative experience of seeing as spirit sees must see truth. He asked Lewis to get rid of his enjoyment contemplation distinction on that basis. But Lewis could (coughs) never reject that distinction. Instead, he got out of the pantheistic system he temporarily shared with Barfield. In reality, Lewis's enjoyment contemplation distinction needed a true creation by a god who was other than the soul. Now, if Lewis wanted to overcome this radical separation of the soul from God, he needed a true incarnation of God. But Lewis did not see this second need at first. In the Suva, Lewis flatly rejected the incarnation. He believed it to be impossible. Even afterwards, Lewis did not immediately become a Christian. He first became a theist with theism's full doctrine of creation, but no incarnation. We must remember, however, that in the end game, Lewis did not become a theist or later a Christian through logical argument. His two conversions were experiential, involving surrender to a person. He even wrote a letter to Barfield at the time, it's been mentioned previously in this conference, terrible things are happening to me. The spirit, or real I, referring back to the Summa time, is showing an alarming tendency to become much more personal and is taking the offensive and behaving just like God. (laughs) You'll have to read my book for more detail on that. But Lewis did start to think about the Incarnation. I believe that the later annotations to the Summa in red pencil were by the theist Lewis moving gradually toward Christianity. Some people can disagree. It might be I'm wrong about this, but that's what I believe at the moment. One of the later notes discusses the possibility that a dramatist could put a character in the drama that in every respect is himself. So after his conversion, what was Lewis's new view of human beings and imagination? And the argument is more in the book. I'm going to summarize it may have taken 10 years for his mature views to form, but certainly by the early 40s, Lewis was able to describe his view in several essays and books, especially his book on miracles and the abolition of man. Briefly, Lewis believed that the created universe was at least two stories tall, with both a natural world and a supernatural world. In addition, he believed that the natural world was not just material or physical, but included an immaterial nature as well. When this immaterial nature appeared in human beings, called a soul, Lewis used the adjective psychological. And the supernatural component of human beings, the created human spirit of man, can be called spiritual. This is indeed a tripartite view of mankind, although some scholars have flatly denied that this was Lewis's view. Stuart Getz, in his otherwise excellent book, A Philosophical Walking Tour with C.S. Lewis, claims Lewis believed in two parts to human beings. But Lewis does not leave the question unclear. He writes, we should be cured at the outset of our inveterate confusion between pneuma and psyche, psyche pneuma, nature and supernature. Lewis emphatically believed in both a soul and a created spirit. The created but supernatural 
Human spirit includes the logical reason, the moral conscience, and the will. The natural, immaterial soul includes personal memories, feelings, and the imagination with a small I. The absolute spirit was no longer what I really am, but a personal God other than the human being. The human spirit, small s, was a creative part of the individual person, although supernatural, showing independence of the cause-effect chain of, of causation that nature shows. In Miracles and the Abolition of Man, Lewis argued that human reason, both logical and moral reason, were at least partially independent from this interlocking chain, and he believed that reason is supernatural. You all know that if you've read Miracles. As for the imagination, it was now demoted, though still important. His controversy with Tilliard, the personal heresy, it provides evidence of that very demotion by Lewis. Lewis himself points this out in an appendix to the book. Have you read that? Lewis wrote that he had exaggerated the role of imagination. At the beginning of the controversy was, in fact, around 1930 or so, when he, he uh, uh, was still trying to work all this out, and may still have had a projection view of the soul from spirit. He wrote he had exaggerated the role of imagination at the beginning, and that imagination was actually on a much lower plane. Imagination, small i, is not evidence of a higher spiritual life, and not evidence that we are, in some sense, God but merely evidence that we are human, he said. It is psychological. Lewis wrote in a footnote <clears throat> to the problem of pain, we must not fancy we are holy because we are human. He was referring, in the context, to that very immortal longings, his formal description of imagination that we just read, capital I, had claimed were evidence of a higher spiritual life. Of course, God can use this humbler imagination to lead us to Christ. And Lewis believed that God did do that. In his case, joy did drive him to leave materialism and accept idealism. His experience of desire did drive him to keep looking for the mysterious object of that desire and to finally find it in Christ. Although not itself spiritual, it can be a road toward the spiritual, he wrote. So far, we have seen several crucial distinctions by Lewis. Holy Spirit, human spirit, nature, supernature, soul, and spirit, both created meaning and knowledge. In conclusion, both Lewis and Barfield gave friendly warnings to each other. Lewis's short story, The Man Born Blind, or Light, describes the confusion of a man named Robin feels after getting eyesight for the first time following an operation. He wants to see light, but is only shown sources of light or objects seen by the light. One day, Robin sees a blindingly white fog over a quarry and plunges into it only to fall to his death on the sharp rocks below. This was Lewis's warning to Barfield against seeking supersensible awareness. In one of the great war letters, Lewis drew pictures to warn Barfield as well, suggesting that an ambulance, an asylum, and even death awaited Barfield's attempts to chip away at the only reality we can ever see in order to find supersensible realities. On his side, Barfield also warned Lewis most clearly in a long verse drama still unpublished, Riders on Pegasus, about two Lewises. Pegasus, the great winged horse, clearly represents imagination with a capital I, in spite of recent big books not understanding that. Perseus killed Medusa, Gordon, Gorgon, by using a mirror and developed a habit of always interacting with reflections of reality rather than reality itself. This was also Lewis. According to Barfield, though, eventually Perseus allowed Pegasus to take him to heaven to interact directly with the supersensible reality there. Unfortunately, he felt that Lewis still was Bellerophon, who slew Chimera, 
a different monster with the help of Pegasus, but refused to ascend to the heavens on the ground of impiety, Barfield has said, and was thrown by Pegasus, and this represents the orthodox Lewis, Christian Lewis, who rejected the supersensible awareness offered in anthroposophy. Barfield warned Lewis that Bellerophon remained earthbound, grumbling, and guilt-oppressed. Both men seem to have intended their warnings to be constructive. That is, they were both trying to bring their friend around to the truth as they saw it. And uh, I think I'll leave it there. There's lots more in the book. (laughs) Thank you. I'm William O'Flaherty, and you're listening to All About Jack, a podcast feature of EssentialCSLewis.com. I hope you enjoyed the extra opportunity to learn more about Stephen's book by hearing the short talk he gave at the 2016 Taylor University Colloquium. If you want to get a copy of Joy and Poetic Imagination, Understanding C.S. Lewis's Great War with Owen Barfield and its significance for Lewis's conversion and writings, then check the show notes for a convenient link. You can find those show notes either at EssentialCSLewis.com or AllAboutJack.Podbean.com. The Podbean location is where the podcast is more easily found. Again, that's AllAboutJack.Podbean.com. Podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N. The other location, EssentialCSLewis.com, provides links back to where the audio files are located, but also has other features which include a variety of articles related to Lewis. At the time this podcast is first posted, I so recently shared a special podcast to recognize the 75th anniversary of Lewis writing the preface to the Screwtape Letters. I did this by having a few guests reflect on that book. Also, not long ago, I shared highlights from the keynote addresses from the 2016 Taylor Colloquium, as well as the panel discussion. In addition to these new shows, I also post previously released podcasts on my iTunes feed that you can also find at the Podbean location. If you don't know how to find the show on iTunes, then be sure to check the show notes for a direct link. Again, those notes can be found either at EssentialCSLewis.com or AllAboutJack.Podbean.com. Finally, speaking of Screwtape, my book C.S. Lewis Goes to Hell, a companion and study guide to the Screwtape Letters, is available online at Amazon, or Barnes & Noble. You can learn more about it by visiting ScrewTapeCompanion.com. There you can get an immediate download of a free 20-page PDF sample of the book. Again, that's ScrewTapeCompanion.com.